The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, um, a production of Restoration Radio. I am your host, Stephen Heiner, and I'm joined today by His Excellency, Bishop Donald Sanborn of the Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brookville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church. Um, thank you, Your Excellency, and thank you, Father, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, this topic is all in the news. Today's topic is, is a marriage equality and uh, the different sort of consequences that flow from this idea. And I, I suppose we might just start at the beginning, Your Excellency, when you say marriage equality, and I would say that in quotes, what does that term mean and what does it imply for those who are trying to push that agenda? Well, it means that they are trying to put uh, sodomy, which is a, a, an unnatural sin, a sin against nature, on the same level as natural uh, sex acts within holy matrimony. And uh, that is not only contrary to nature, it is also contrary to God's law, God's positive law and the sacrament of matrimony. So it's blasphemous and, uh, and really invites the punishment of God upon a nation that would uh, approve of such a thing. Uh, that's what it means. So when they use the term equality, I guess obviously they're implying that up to this point we've been unequal, or there's a certain segment of the population for whom this is unequal. Well, there, there is, first of all, sodomy doesn't pertain to marriage. The very term marriage, or matrimony, matrimony is the duty of mother, matrimonium, and uh, the, uh, there, is, there is no such thing as, as anything besides one man and one woman that qualifies for the term marriage. I mean, even second marriages after divorce, when the first spouse is still living, is, is not marriage. That's not marriage. It's, that's a false marriage. Uh, one man and one woman for life, that is what qualifies. So the idea of you know, getting two people of the same sex together and calling it matrimony or marriage is absolutely absurd and, and contrary to reason, uh, contrary to, to everything that is decent in, in human beings. Uh, and, and so it doesn't deserve really any consideration at all. So what, what you get in the whole... Um, what you get in the whole discussion is you get to this point, we have gotten to this point, say, as regards the civil law in the United States and in other countries, because of um, changing the terms, changing the definition of marriage into something else, making it into something else. And uh, then logically, I suppose, once you make it into something else, then uh, eventually there are consequences to that. So what we're seeing in this is just sort of one step in a very, very long process that uh, uh, began well over 100 years ago. Well, 
Your Excellency, when Father's talking about that changing in the meaning, I'm thinking here, particularly in the United States, we had that whole fight over the Defense of Marriage Act some time ago, and some people had warned that if you allow the government to define what marriage is, it will only be a matter of time until a certain majority is in charge and they will try to change the meaning of of marriage. What what kind of prob what kind of problem do we see in allowing the government to basically state the terms or to define what things are, at least in regards to matrimony? Well, because it is re- no, sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, what you end up with is you just uh, the a thing ends up being whatever the government says it is. When it comes to uh, law, a uh, law should reflect the the nature of things, and and all of the the protections that you had in the civil law, and uh, certainly in, in church law around the institution of matrimony, were based on uh, a common understanding of that, uh, as as Bishop. Uh, Sanborn uh, defined it. It was a man and a woman who um, uh, entered into a, uh, this this exclusive union with each other uh, for the procreation of children, and that was the the understanding of it. And the civil law uh, and church law protected that, and it was more or less agreed, at least. Uh, in the West, that this it was divine origin, it was the law of nature, and there's a common understanding. So your civil law regulations that you had uh, in the United States and other countries were were based on that. And so if you uh, change the definition and you just use the uh, by a fiat of the civil law, you try to make it into something else. That's uh, kind of why we end up where we have. I should add, too, that this problem shows the inherent weakness of the American Constitution, which mentioned God in no place at all, uh, and therefore the it is up to a bunch of people in the Congress or a, a bunch of people in the Supreme Court building to decide things that pertain to people's ultimate eternal salvation that there is no reference, there's no mention of Jesus Christ, there is no mention of God, and so there's not even a mention of the natural law. So Congress and the Supreme Court are off the leash completely and really can decide whatever they want about what marriage is. Or, or there's, there's absolutely no norm above the Congress and the Supreme Court. They decide what they want to do, and, and it's an inherent uh, problem in the original Constitution of the United States. If you talk about rights too, which is you know one of the things that we're talking about, um, the uh, traditionally that has an uh, objective meaning, uh, the right thing, something that's doing justice, something that's connected with the, the moral virtue of justice, and if you write God out of the picture in the political order, eventually you're going to run into trouble. Uh, if there's uh, a common understanding of certain uh, uh, things based on, say, oh, the natural law or on the, the uh, on reason, uh, and that's uh, enshrined in the law, you're going to have that uh, in a system of God. You're going to have that uh, as long as there's a common agreement on it. But if the common agreement ceases, then uh, the uh, whole idea of the rights and everything else change because there's and no I, moral basis for it. 
and I want to come back to that language of rights, um, Father and Your Excellency. I, I, I think I want to stay here, though, on this point now and ask why, why is it in this last, let's say, 6 to 12 to 18 months we've had such a huge push? It's in the news all the time. It's in everything. What about this year, this current epoch, um, is causing this push for this particular issue? Oh, I think it's the, the crest of the wave. Uh, this has been coming since the 1960s, little by little. And I think the only difference now is that the the walls have broken down, the seawalls, if you want, have broken down, that the people are so liberal now, and they have been so affected by all of the spirit of the 1960s that they realize that they have no intrinsic objection to homosexual marriage. They can't say anything against it because they themselves have espoused the fact that pleasure is the determining factor in all morality. They are hedonists in in the perfect sense of the term. What can they say against it when they themselves are involved in the depths of hedonism? They have no sense of natural law. They have no sense of objective morality. There's nothing that they can say against it. And so there's a tiny minority of people, well, maybe 10%, 20% at the most, a minority, let's say, that do still believe in some form of objective morality and, and object to these things, but the rest uh, have, have nothing to say. And it's something that's, uh, you know, been uh, a very, very long time in coming. I mean, it's, it's a... a uh, I'm not exaggerating to say, you know, over the past 100 years... Um, what has has uh, been going on is the the uh, sort of the the consensus that you had say in American society about certain things being wrong when it comes to marriage and certain things uh, being right that that is that is uh, broken down and uh, you had uh, if you take for instance the question of contraception that the uh, foundress of of uh, Planned Parenthood was the eugenicist Margaret Sanger, and she uh, advocated contraception in uh, a very explicit way and tried to import contraceptives and so on in the, the, the teens of the 20th century. And there was still a um, consensus against that in, uh, in American society. So she was... Uh, 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 she was prosecuted for it, and uh, her uh, it was tied in with um, uh, the pleasure principle and also tied in with the idea of racism and eugenics, that the uh, uh, lighter-skinned races were superior to the dark-skinned races. They don't tell you too much about that in Planned Parenthood's history. But uh, uh, the... Uh, she was a terrible racist. Oh, she was awful. So... Uh, it, in any event, um, she pushed these ideas, and um, you know, eventually, uh, uh, eventually popularized them, and uh, eventually won us a, 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 a sort of moral, if you want, rather immoral approval for them. So you had that going on, and the churches did not, uh, you know, with the exception of the Catholic Church. Uh, it did not stand up against this. So y- you had this, this uh, uh, contraceptive mentality uh, against the primary end of marriage beginning in the um, uh, beginning of the 20th century. Yes. 
You know, Father, it's interesting you mentioned that link to contraception because as His Excellency was alluding to earlier about all of these things sort of being connected, I, I'm thought, I think about, you know, one of the classes he teaches at the seminary about history and we think about the time when the church had put her stamp on how society looked at divorce, contraception, pornography, homosexuality, and that as the influence of the church has faded from modern society, all of these things have fallen one by one. So we lost lost the battle on divorce, lost the battle on pornography, lost the battle on contraception, and now it seems even losing the battle on on homosexuality. All of these things are tied together. They are. Let me point out that that's since Vatican II. Uh, The Catholic Church won the battle against pornography by the Legion of Decency with regard to movies, it won the battle against uh, the uh, uh, contraception. In the 1950s, it was still illegal to sell contraceptives. Uh, I mean, that was something considered immoral. Uh, it did not win on, on divorce, that's true, but nevertheless, the Church held a very strong line against it, and, and divorce was considered uh, something shameful. Uh, even among Protestants, I remember as a child that uh, Rockefeller was uh, perhaps not able to be elected the governor of New York because he was divorced. Yes, yeah. Uh, I remember that distinctly. Yes, and uh, Reagan was, was even as late as Reagan, whether he could pass as a president as the first divorced president. Uh, So there was a, a stigma attached to all of that, and that was definitely due to the influence of the Catholic Church. Uh, well, I mean, Protestantism isn't going to, <laughs> to say it. Uh, and uh, uh, so, I mean, the church was successful because it gave a very strong witness against all of those forms of immorality. Well, let me, After let me Vatican II, it fell apart completely. Right, I was going to say, in the, in the pre-show, Your Excellency, we were talking about, you had mentioned, if, the Catholic, if Catholic bishops were out there saying that this was wrong, as it was back in your time, that th- we wouldn't necessarily be having the same sort of conversation, but... Uh, that now, because this isn't being done, that those sorts of safeguards have fallen away. And so what could have been won back in the 50s and 60s is being lost now. Yes. Yeah, if Vatican II had not Catholic. happened, you would not have abortion in the United States. No. Guaranteed. No. Guaranteed. You would have had a, a solid Catholic voting block against anything that they wanted to do. If the bishops were up there pounding the pulpits, and saying we have to be against this, we have to be against that, you would have seen a, a, a very, very unified force against all of this moral corruption. But they are part of it now. Well, your Excellency Father, you, you're talking about something I've never even heard of before, you know, in terms of, I mean, I know that that happened, I had the Father Coughlin days, and, and but uh, that's all um, theory, or like, I don't know, ancient history, it's just to conceive of conceive of a time when bishops would talk and people would walk, kind of thing. Like, somewhat, I think there's, this was somewhat organized in France recently, there was some protest in Paris that was organized by the bishops, I think, and there's, I guess you could say there's some kind of remnant of a shadow of something going on back there, but um, that whole idea that the bishops would marshal people to political action, it, it's a uh, it's, um, well, to moral action first, moral me. action and moral conviction. I remember as a child standing up on December 8th before the, the sermon and taking the pledge to not go to movies that were condemned by the Catholic Church. Uh, 
and the whole church had to take that pledge. Yeah. And, you know, everybody did it in the whole country. And I remember that we could not see movies that, that were not permitted to us to see by, we, we would get handouts every week, what we could see. I mean, this was, this was morality. This was the law. And, yeah, and that all disappeared. Yes, very seriously. And it, uh, it's so, hard you know, you, for younger people to conceive of that. That there was the the, the church actually had a uh, moral force and a, a moral vice, and all of that again, thanks to Vatican II, has, has been gone because mm-hmm. the council itself um, undermined the authority of the church. Yes, it does. Well, well, that's because you don't want to take away from the dignity of the human person, Father. You don't <laughs> yeah. want to undermine the the uh, the dignity of each person's individual choice and his or her individual conscience. In which mm-hmm. the, the the dignity of the person who wants to see those dirty movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> a, a very dignified way to spend your time. Yeah. Uh, I want to return back to that theme you brought up, Father, and um, His Excellency had, has brought up in previous conversation, which is this whole idea of rights, because uh, anyone who's listening to the show who isn't necessarily Catholic or maybe they don't consider themselves even Christian, they may say, well, that's all well and good for you people to think that, but you're infringing on my rights for me to do as I want. And I think it's important for us to get into this whole language of rights, because it can be used... You know, some people can use it to their advantage, but they don't realize when they step into using this kind of vocabulary, it isn't necessarily the best way to argue either for the faith or for Catholicism. So, Your Excellency or, uh, or Father, would you like to talk about the, the whole idea of right, how it relates to the French Revolution, and, and how it relates to what we're talking about today? Well, the right is defined as a moral faculty uh, to do something good which is objectively good. A moral faculty means that you, uh, just just like your arm or, or your mind is a faculty, your arm is a faculty of your body, your, your intellect is a faculty of your soul, that is, it is something that has, as its object, some act to perform. So that's a faculty. Your eyes are faculties. They have the, an object to perform. And so you're, there, is, there are moral faculties, that is, abilities to act uh, in accordance with some object which obviously has to be good. That moral, uh, that moral faculty is given by God because he is the ultimate good, which, which is the object of all morality and all moral faculty, all moral right. So it is impossible to conceive of God giving a moral faculty to do something evil that is uh, contrary to him. Uh, when we do something right, we move toward him. When we do something wrong, we move away from him. It, it, it is blasphemous and, and, and contrary to reason in the deepest sense to think that God could in some way empower somebody to move away from him and contradict him. So there, is, there can never be a right to do something evil. You have a right to do something good, and in most cases you have that right because of a corresponding duty. So we have the duty to obey the law of God. So uh, that's how the church has always understood religious liberty. That is, that the Catholic Church has the right to preach and to teach, to, to function in countries, 
uh, and that uh, no one should impede it because it is empowered by God as the one true church of Christ to do these things. And that these rights cannot be enjoyed by false religions because it is impossible that God could ever grant a right to, to something that is against him. Uh, and so the same is true uh, of all the, uh, the moral uh, considerations, uh, that you could never have a right to do something evil. You could never have a right to steal or a right to murder. Uh, impossible. Uh, now, the French Revolution changed all that because it divorced society from God, and it adopted the, uh, the doctrines of Rousseau, whereby liberty was the, considered the highest good of man, and that the way in which liberty is exercised in society is by the social contract and by the general will of the people. So when there is a majority of people that feel that something is right or wrong, then everyone must go along with it or get your head chopped off. No. Uh, and it has really nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with anything but the whim of the people. And so right then goes, uh, goes, is transferred directly to the state, the state it becomes the source of all right, and any kind of appeal beyond the state of having some right beyond the state becomes ridiculous. And so you get the all of the the blueprints of the totalitarian state there, and and the state the kind of you know world that we're living in. Well, there's no control on it in terms of uh, no uh, in terms of the the moral law that no. uh, what the state. Uh, decrees is uh, uh, that is the highest law for it. Yes. Yes. So, so uh, you saw that, in, for example, in the Nazi Germany putting to death people who were insane or in some way impaired, just uh, you know doing away with them because they're useless to the state and, and uh, the state has the right to do that. And uh, if the state is supreme and uh, you know determines the social contract, uh, who is to say that that's wrong if there's nothing above it? Mm-hmm. So you, how can you uh, be so judgmental about the Fuhrer in putting all those poor people to death? Because mm-hmm. this was this was seen as the good of the state. Yes. And uh, the, the the state is uh, state is supreme. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that point I had alluded to earlier, Your Excellency, is that sometimes you can use this language of rights and it, it gets us away from what you were talking about, is what is the original grounding of our law and the way that we see the world? And so we'll have this allusion to our right to life. Right? So we're mm-hmm. still using the language of the revolution um, to try to make our case, which means we've already conceded the revolution. Well, yes, I mean, the right to life, uh, if you're not mentioning God, where does that right to life come from, except from Thomas Jefferson's pen? No. You know, if you exclude God from the state, you, you, you have nothing on which to base right, absolutely nothing. And, and, and all right, as Father Chicada says, really you know, depends on, on the general mood of the people. What they consider to be immoral in the 18th century, they consider fine in the 19th century, and so forth. I had one uh, liberal Democrat say to me, we were talking about euthanasia, and he said, I said, isn't that murder? You know, we were talking about a specific, specific case. And he said, well, you know, murder is defined differently in different times, and killing people you know, in, uh, varies uh, you know, according to the mood of the people. And you know, I was in shock 
when he said this, uh, you know, I just was my jaw dropped because that opens the door to all sorts of. Uh, I mean, that opens the door to concentration camps. I mean, <laughs> if you say that that the mood of the people is really what determines the definition of murder. Uh, you know, you have a society that I, you know, as the apocalypse said, the the living will envy the dead. <laughs> yeah. And in you get um, what you get in the United States is uh, it uh, depends on the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. And that's that's the um, because the state is supreme. That that's the ultimate. Um, uh, that's the ultimate judge of right and wrong, what is to be uh, permissible. And, you know, looks fine if uh, you have the consent about different principles of the moral law, but once that consent breaks down and uh, uh, people lose, uh, you know, the, uh, their fundamental sense of right and wrong, then that goes too. I'll give you an example. Uh, in this American Civil War, if there was any sodomy among the soldiers, uh, Lincoln never, ever commuted the sentence of death. It was a death sentence upon it. And it was considered so horrible that you would be hanged and not shot because it was dishonorable. And so people were hanged for it, and, and everyone thought they deserved it. And Lincoln did not ever commute any one of those sentences in the Civil War. In the First World War, among in the French army, if you were caught doing that, you would be shot or else you would be put on a suicide mission. Now, just to show you how things change, if that were put in today, <laughs> just think about this. I mean, World War I is only 100 years ago. Well, the, how the, the minds of people have changed, because there is no objective norm. All they're doing is is evolving according to various pressures and, and their own decadence. There is no objective norm. I mean, today you have you have uh, homosexuals in the military and and you know carrying on, I suppose, according to their whims. And uh, whereas you know in the Civil War 150 years ago, it was, they would have been hanged. And uh, as an aside, uh, the uh, you see. The insanity of um, uh, liberalism and the, and the lack of morality. Because uh, what about uh, about a week ago? Uh, there's a, a huge scandal uh, about uh, sexual harassment, you know, among the ranks in the uh, U.S. services. Well, I mean, what do you expect when you put men and women together? Yes. You're, you're, yeah. It's it's based on a uh, it, it's like a denial of reality. Uh, you know, you have have fallen human nature, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you uh, liberal society because of uh, this this idea of equality and this this new right uh, uh, it ends up ignoring reality. Mm -hmm. Well, and your point about the sort of mixed uh, mixed sex, gender sexes in the military, it's always interesting. If you talk to anyone like myself who served in the military, we all know it's a horrible idea, but this is always using the military as social engineering. Well, we'll, we'll put our will out, civilian will, upon a military, and no one in the military is asking for it, and everyone in the military tells you it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. No? Yes. 
I, I would pounce on a term that you used. You said gender, and that's the the language of the '60s. Uh, one of the um, the ideas is uh, uh, I remember a professor saying in class that the sex is man or woman, right? And gender is what a noun is. Mm. Uh, behold, behind the whole idea of gender uh, was the uh, modern idea in the 60s that the roles of men and women were things that were uh, arbitrary and assigned by society rather than something uh, intrinsic to them. Mm-hmm. And so you see a, a uh, playing with the terminology, as it were, to put an agenda across. No, I, I think that that point's well taken, and I'm justly accused, Father, <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 using the language of the revolution there. We, we won't hang you for that one, though. <laughs> <laughs> or, or send you out on a suicide mission, I hope. Hey, that's um, right. Um, one of the terms that uh, I, always, I, I found interesting when I was in college, and I, I uh, was speaking to someone who was con- called a gender studies major. Um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> they used the term. They used the term heteronormative, and I, I had this sort of quizzical look on my face, and I, I said, and I, I worked it through in my head. I said, uh, "Are you saying that it's wrong to think that heterosexuality is the norm?" He's like, "Yeah, that's such a heteronormative idea," <laughs> and I thought, "Well, this is this is a you know you you take these terms, you make it sound scary." And then you, you impose it upon people, and you don't think, oh, goodness, I don't want to be heteronormative. Um, and I think, to uh, along with what you just said, Father, something that His Excellency has been saying today as we've been talking about this topic, he's been using the term sodomite or sodomitic, and that's certainly not a term we hear anymore. Uh, we hear all kinds of other words. Why do you think it's important to either use that phrase or, like Father pointed out, not slip into using uh replacement language well for one it is the traditional term for it uh it is the sin of sodom and uh it it evokes the uh fire and brimstone it it evokes the thought of the anger of god uh for having contradicted his nature there is a, a saying in philosophy that nature is in a certain way god uh, that is not understood in a pantheistic sense, but it is understood in this way, that God is the author of nature, and his blueprint, his plan, his design is in every natural thing. And to refuse nature and to revolt against it is to revolt against God. So that revolt was very, very clearly punished by God in the Old Testament, and there are many texts, uh, in the Old Testament and in the New, in Romans and also in Corinthians, condemning the the sin of Sodom. So, you know, I just think uh, it, it is the appropriate word for it, uh, and that um, it, it has its origin—well, perhaps not its origins, but certainly it has its its uh, its fame, let's say, or infamy from from that uh, the the destruction of that city. Uh, also, the the term homosexual, I would say, uh, is, is sexuality by its very nature is hetero. It's something like electricity. It is impossible that it be attracted to the same thing. Uh, it, by its very nature, it's attracted to an opposite. That is why you see a lot of these male homosexuals dressing up as women. They, in other words, they are 
women uh, psychologically or by inclination. They are women, and they are attracted to men. It's by its very nature hetero. So, uh, you know, it's, it's probably not the, the most accurate term. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. Um, our topic today is the term marriage equality and what the implications are for Catholics and for society regarding um, God's law. Our guests are His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and uh, Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church um, in Westchester, Ohio. Um, if, if you'd like to uh, submit questions, we are going to be taking phone calls in about 15 minutes, but right now we are going to take questions via Twitter. If you go to twitter.com and you use our handle at True Restoration and you write a question or a comment, um, if it's appropriate, I will um, I will bring it up to His Excellency and to Father, and we will try to answer it as best as we can. I want to... Father, and your Excellency Father, I want to go back to something that uh, Father had brought up early on in the conversation was that this whole movement is tied to contraception. And I think a lot of people would stop short and when you would mention that and say, well, I, I don't really, I don't necessarily see that connection. And can we, can we revisit that point, Father, and, and try to try to connect these issues? Because someone might say, well, Contraception. How does what does that have to do with homosexuality? Well, the um, if you start out with an understanding of uh, you know the nature of marriage, we talked about that uh, the the uh, union between a man and a woman for the uh, uh, continuation essentially of the human race. So that's your your. Uh, basic understanding that most people had um then you have in the 20th century this move uh toward contraception and it it is something that uh is promoted and um eventually becomes socially acceptable to uh, to speak about and then in in uh, 1960 you get the contraceptive pill so you're not using uh, uh, some sort of physical uh, device for contraception, but uh, there's a pill which makes it uh, very easy. And the use of these things uh, divorce uh, uh, sexual pleasure from uh, procreation, and that's the was the uh, attraction, as it were, of the pill because it reduces the the marriage act to something simply that's uh, that's pleasurable. So you have this this agitation for that in society generally, and then the uh, church in Vatican II lets her guard down. The church taught that the the, uh, primary purpose of uh, marriage was the procreation of children, and the secondary aspect of it was the unitive um, between the husband and the wife, the union of... of, uh, uh, affection, the bond between the two of them. What you had happen at uh, the Second Vatican Council is uh, you had uh, prelates who uh, and theologians who sought to undermine that distinction between primary and secondary end of marriage. Uh, this um, 
was accomplished in, in uh, Lumen Gentium by uh, doing away with the distinction between the primary and secondary end of marriage. And uh, so you, the uh, it was ripe after Vatican II for uh, those who uh, wanted to abandon uh, traditional Catholic doctrine on the nature of marriage to do so because they had been uh, given the tools in effect by Vatican II. So there was this this agitation. And because, as Bishop Sanborn pointed out earlier, uh, because of the strength of the church in um, American society, once the church let uh, her guard down, uh, then uh, the Catholics themselves began to reject the traditional teaching that the contraception is, is something that's sinful. And so you have this divorce between um, the uh, uh, pleasure of the marital act and uh, procreation. And uh, that uh, became a, uh, uh, that was very much a part of modern society and very much uh, a part of the understanding that of, of marriage and the part of the church. And so once you, once you get to that point, then basically anything is possible. I mean, Bishop Sanborn and I uh, lived through this particular era. And, uh, you know, we remember the um, controversies over uh, contraception uh, and uh, the arguments uh, back and forth and, and how uh, theologians favored the, uh, who favored the liberty to contracept, just got away with it, simply got away with it. And um, the, uh, one of my professors... Uh, said that um, uh, at this time that, you know, if you can uh, justify contraception, you lose the primary end of the marital act, and you can open the door to justify any and all sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. And so there, there's that connection once you cut off the generation um, from uh, uh, from the marital act. Uh, it should be pointed out as well that we're, you know, 50 years after Vatican II, and that means 50 years of people, including Catholics, using birth control pills as if they were candy uh, and limiting their their uh, families to 1.5 or whatever it is. Uh, and, you know, with every single uh, swallow of a pill, there is also the swallowing of a of the principle that the the sexual activity is divorced from procreation and its primary concern is pleasure. And as Father said, once that principle becomes enshrined in people's minds, anything goes. And and homosexuality is not the the last stop on the train. I mean, there's bestiality and necrophilia, which lies ahead. And that is the attraction to uh, animals and the attraction to dead bodies. I mean, why should we be discriminating against the Jeffrey Dahmers of this world? If you can make the same argument. You, and the thing is that people are shocked when you say something like that, but you have no principles to fall back on. Right. Uh, the, the no objective principles. Because at the same time that all this uh, favoring of contraception was... Uh, in the air in the 60s, then you had the gay lib movement, and that was uh, toward the end of the 60s, and that uh, went went on for 40 years or whatever it is now, and 
um, uh, you know, as, 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 as a, a parallel and then uh, tied into the absence of principles when it comes to contraception. So it's all, it all sort of rolls together. I mean, why can't I marry a dog? Or why can't I marry a dead body? Or your sister. <laughs> or your yeah. sister. Incest, yes. And then that opens the door, too, as we've seen more recently, uh, people pioneering the idea of uh, loosening uh, the, the age for consent of children to, uh, to sexual acts. This yeah, is what's coming down the pike. Why should we impose these Victorian uh, age limits upon children who are educated in sex from an early age? Why can't they decide to have sex with adults? Yeah, and if you uh, you know look on the internet, you find prominent people advocating this. There's a um, uh, actually, I guess, a fairly famous writer named uh, Edmund White, who advocated you know precisely that. He says uh, said that it's it's uh, that um, uh, saying that there's something wrong with this is is hypocrisy. He he calls calls it intergenerational sex. So he he. Uh, relabels things, and uh, there was just a uh, uh, controversy in Britain about a week ago. Um, I don't know uh, how many people are aware of it, but there were some popular entertainers in um, uh, Britain who uh, were doing all sorts of awful things with uh, uh, little boys and girls. One of them was Jimmy Savile, and very well known over there. And the three hundred or, or, or four hundred. Uh, kids that he had his way with over the years, and there are several other ones. But uh, there was a, uh, a very prominent um, uh, pro-abortion lawyer um, uh, who, uh, about a week ago, said that it's hypocrisy to talk about this, to complain about it, because it's a um, uh, that it's imposing standards on uh, these people. Why shouldn't there be a lower age of consent? Uh, you know, of, of uh, a 12 or 14. Uh, okay. And why we're hypocritical going after these people trying to enforce these Victorian standards on them. So that's kind of what you get 100 years after Margaret Sanger. Yes, it's, a, it's just an open door. It's like the bottomless pit of the apocalypse, just uh, because anything will be, can be justified and will be justified by these principles. Well, I think both of you make a good point. We keep coming back to the notion of, well, what are your principles? So if you're for, quote-unquote, marriage equality, by what principle do you do you operate? And most of the time there is not a principle here, because at least not a principle that will escape a further uh, slippery slope. Well, uh, you generally end up with something sort of relativistic, that, well, uh, you know, maybe it's psychologically damaging for kids who are not uh, mature. But then... Uh, what is wrong in terms of um, uh, psychologically damaging? I mean, uh, that's up to the uh, American Psychiatric Association, isn't it? And uh, they can define, uh, you know, pathologies of, of behavior and attitudes and redefine them uh, from one year to the next. So it's nothing. Uh, so there's nothing really objective there. And all that stuff is extremely scary. Yes, and if you look at the books of the 1930s and 1940s, they defined homosexual tendency as a pathology. 
that there was it was a psychological disorder. And so just as that has changed now, I don't think anyone would ever, you know, any of those people would be caught dead saying that today. So also they could reevaluate uh, what is, you know, termed a psychological disorder with regard to pederasty and, and other things. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, and we are covering the topic today of marriage equality, um, quote-unquote. And uh, we are about at the halfway point of our show, and so we're going to open up our phone lines. Our telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that is 949 949- Two seven two nine four one seven. Call and uh, and remember when you do have the opportunity to ask your question, please try to be brief and to the point, so that we can. Um, if we do happen to get a lot of questions on this topic, we can get to as many of them as we can. Um, if you don't want to wait in a phone queue, you can go to Twitter and ask your question um, that way by addressing it to our handle at True Restoration. You know, Your Excellency, some people might hear your tone, and we talked a little bit about this in the pre-show, and they'll say, all right, well, what's the, uh, what's the way for Catholic action in this scenario? What would Bishop Sanborn say is the proper way to deal with this issue using Catholic action? And I, I thought you had a, a very interesting response. Well, I would say that you can't have Catholic action without Catholicism. And you don't have Catholicism unless you are thoroughly and consistently broken from the Novus Ordo. Unless you have made a breach completely from that new religion, which is part and parcel of this whole problem, which has relativized Catholic morality, and which, uh, I mean, Bergoglio himself was promoting uh, homosexual civil unions in Argentina. And according to uh, Leonardo Boff, actually permitted a homosexual couple to adopt a child. I mean, they are part of the problem. For as long as you are connected to that religion, you don't have Catholicism, and therefore you cannot have Catholic action. That, that's one thing I would say, that, that you are crippled. Uh, the, the second thing I would say is that, at least in this country, uh, to me, the fact that someone like Obama could be elected the second time around for all that he stands for is a sign that the general population is in an extreme form of decadence, moral decadence. And I think they're hopeless for the reason that there is nothing to lift them out of the decadence. There is no voice of the Catholic Church to lift people out of the decadence. When you go over a cliff, you accelerate as you go down the cliff until your car you know, catches on fire. And so also that when, when a, a nation is going down the moral cliff, it's accelerating. And so uh, I don't know what you would appeal to in people with, with a Catholic action. In the sense, you're even, even a natural law action, let's say. They don't believe in natural law. They have to be educated in all the principles. They no, They no longer have any reticence about... Uh, people uh, committing uh, you know, same-sex sins. They they think, well, what of it? You know, it's pleasure if the, if the pleasure makes you happy. Do it. This, I mean, they are the 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 
the bigger problem is not actually the, the minority of people who are going to engage in these marriages and various other sins of this nature. The bigger problem is the sickness of society that is approving of it. That is far, far greater because society is a representative of God by nature. And when it gives the sanction of law to something that is intrinsically perverse and which is to every ordinary human being something disgusting to think about, let you know, truth be told, uh, when it is going to give uh, a sanction to that and approval of that, that means the society is deeply, deeply mentally sick and morally sick. I don't know what you would appeal to. You know, it would be like uh, <laughs> talking to a, you know, uh, ashes or something. I mean, it, it, from the moral and intellectual point of view, I mean, it, it, it's it's just all burned down. So, uh, the, I, you know, I know that sounds pretty discouraging and, and sort of dark, but I think it's the reality that we're facing. It's difficult, if you, uh, extremely difficult, because you don't have a... Uh, Common language or common principles uh, that that uh, things have gotten so far along. It's difficult, really, to know what to appeal to. Uh, we, we we we've lost the vocabulary to have a conversation about it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like an alien language. It really is. Uh, it's. Um, I mean, it happened in ancient Rome. Uh, the ancient Romans, although they never sanctioned it by law, to my knowledge, nevertheless had lost all of their horror for it. And it, it was just such a common thing. And we see that in the epistles of St. Paul, uh, that he, he railed against it uh, on various occasions. And, and it was a difficult thing to overcome that uh, in, the, in the early church because the, the, everybody thought it was, well, you know, just okay. Uh, the, hedonism was, was the morality of the day. And but you had a, a very strong early church that was pulling people away from that and condemning it, and finally civilized the human race by by drawing it away from it. And now we're going back to the the uh, time of unredeemed man, where where people did whatever they pleased and, and just followed pleasure, just like the animals. Well, you end up with a, a situation. Well, in Rome, you ended up with a, a situation just uh, where. Uh, the society fell apart. It completely fell apart at a certain point, and then the church uh, uh, reconstructed things. But it, it uh, you know, it, it uh, took a long uh, it, uh, time for it to devolve and uh, to fall apart before, um, you know, to bring people to the point where they would they turn to the truth. Yes, the, the popes could not get the Romans to give up the bloody gladiatorial games until the middle of the 500s, which is 150 years after Constantine, until one pope finally said, that's it, there's going to be no more. <laughs> and uh, uh, But they were still addicted to those things. And, it's, and I'm pointing that out, that people come back from immorality very, very slowly. They fall into it very easily and quickly. And what we're doing is in this modern society is blowing up the magnificent buildings of Catholic civilization that was built in those early years and which was preserved for centuries. That those are all being blown up right now, and there's a rubble, and that's all that's left. 
you both pointed to Vatican II as a, a watershed moment. In fact, I, I think uh, one of you had said earlier that without Vatican II, there wouldn't have been abortion in the United States. Father, I think Father Chicada, you said that. Mm-hmm. And so some people will look back when they're when you they're still fighting the you could say the Catholic battle on contraception, and they'll get to point back and say yes, but Paul VI wrote Humanae Vitae, which was a great document, and it helped people to understand that the church still stood against contraception. And I know we had in the lead up to the show we had talked about the role of Humanae Vitae. I suppose the first question is, was this a good encyclical in the tradition of Mirari Vos? Pashendi and those other great papal encyclicals. It was an awful encyclical. And it was even surprising, uh, you know, to someone who was young. I mean, I was young at the time when it came out. And there was all this dispute. I, I think it was maybe 18 or something, 17 or 18. And the liberals at the seminary were all going on about how contraception should be approved, etc., and, uh, you know, one, one can't talk in all those negative terms, and you have to have freedom of conscience and everything. So the Pope writes an encyclical, and, um, you know, you get the thing, and you say, well, he's going to lay the law down and talk about mortal sin and everything. I don't think he mentioned sin once. You know, and, and so it was, it was um, uh, all sort of mushy and, and uh, mushy and vague, and did not use the standard theological language to describe what was going on. You know, he yes, didn't in talk fact, he, about... He, he gave all the logic of justifying it. While, while he condemned it, he nevertheless gave the moral logic to justify it. That's why it's a horrid encyclical. Yeah. Uh, so by saying that, that the, they are co-equal, the two ends of marriage are co-equal. And that just builds on the teaching of, of Lumen Gentium of Vatican II. Yes, so and the it, liberal theologians. So you end up with um, uh, a, you know, the second state is, is, is worse than the first. And then he took forever to do it and temporized. And, and then did uh, nothing to enforce it. Yeah. You, had, uh, you did not have people who were uh, silenced because of it. Uh, because of objecting to it, uh, you know the different bishops' conferences um, basically said what they want about it. No one was, um, uh, uh, you know, reprimanded or excommunicated or anything like that. So it was sort of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge that um, uh, we're going to let you uh, get away with that, and people did. You know, it was contraception then became acceptable. The fact that it is practiced by, or believed to be, you know, moral and good by something like ninety percent of Novus Ordo Catholics, at least, yeah, uh, is a sign that the clergy believe it and are saying it, because the people could not come up with that or get away with that if the clergy themselves were not convinced of that. It means that in their private conversations with the clergy, the clergy are saying, "Use your conscience and do what you think is right." They are not imposing the moral law upon them, and uh, other you could never see those figures unless that were true. So, 
but I mean that that was the the line of uh, the line of the '60s when it comes to this. That well, you know, the primacy of your conscience, and uh, uh, you know, you weigh these decisions very carefully, and you know, you wait for the spirit to breathe, etc. You know, pass the pills. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's uh, uh, they. It was not uh, preach from the pulpit. And certainly it was not when it when it came to the uh, people stopped going to confession at that point anyway or had uh, after Vatican II uh, that was uh, another one of the the changes of the new springtime so it certainly was not uh, enforced in the confessional mm-hmm. and you know I'm, but no one I'm sure was re- refused absolution in the Milwaukee Archdiocese where I came from for practicing contraception um, no. but it was it was off the radar screen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and the encyclical came out in July of 1968, and you know, Father, when you said it was when you were 18, I was thinking, you know, that was like a hundred years ago. So oh, I've yeah. forgotten it was actually much more recent than that. And um, <laughs> when you refer to, you know, that sort of language, uh, the way it feels very Novus Ordo-ish, because you know, who gets excited when an encyclical comes out now? The the sort of neoconservative punditry. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone yeah. reads them. I don't think anyone in the world reads them. Uh, Can you understand them? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think that's a good point. But I mean, when this encyclical came out, and you're you're referring to you know what the reaction was of Catholics, the deep, you know, I think also at least from what I read, I I wasn't around. It seemed like this was the first sort of substantive pushback from lay people on a church teaching in public. It would seem it seems that from reading some of the stories about the time that people either, as you said, wink wink, we are not going to say anything about her, or they almost started to write sort of elements of dissent against Humane Vitae or against the church's teaching here. Oh, sure they did. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and ten and years ten years before that, let's say nineteen fifty eight, that could it would you say that, that would have been unthinkable? Unheard of and unthinkable. But, yeah. Uh, scandal. Uh, you know, contraception was like a dirty word. So, yeah, so what a different what a difference a decade makes, I guess. Yeah. Yes. Well, there there was a, a revolution in the 1960s that that actually exceeded in its effects the the French Revolution. In terms it was of the revolution of the mind. Yeah. You know, the French Revolution was a political one, but the, the, the revolution against the natural law and everything even basically and fundamentally decent in human beings. So, Your Excellency, I know that you're you're one to always go back to basic, clear, simple Catholic doctrine. So I'm imagining your Humanae Vitae encyclical, where you, uh, the Pope at the time, would have been a, a one-page anathema. Well, I mean, it, uh, first of all, it would have been a bull, not an encyclical. Uh, encyclical is too soft. Uh, a bull uh, declaring dogmatically that this is something contrary to nature and immoral and, and citing uh, sacred scripture, uh, it would have been a relatively short document, yes. I mean, it's clear. Uh, it's against the natural law. It, it's a filthy thing that, that cries to heaven for vengeance. Things like that. <laughs> I mean, That's what you would have heard. The, princi- <laughs> the principles are so uh, the principles are so clear on it. 
you wouldn't have to say much. You know, you don't have yeah. to go on for pages and pages as Paul VI did. But still, I mean, the fact that he somehow disapproved of it, I mean, that by, by that time in 68, even that offended people. Oh, yes. Oh, it was people went around with long faces and, you know, this is the end of the world for us. But there was an immediate reaction of, well, we don't have to listen to him and we can use our own conscience. I, I remember it. Sure. Mm-hmm. I remember it very clearly as Father Chicada does. I mean, it was not taken seriously at all. And Paul VI knew that it wouldn't be and essentially threw up his hands. I don't think he had any intention of enforcing it. But I do think that he knew enough that if he did if he approved of it, he would have lost credibility for the council. That it would have been such a breach of Catholic doctrine that the council would have lost credibility. And so he reluctantly said no in order to retain the credibility of the council. That's my opinion. Was there a school but effectively of he that... said yes because everyone's doing it. But... Was there a school of thought that, I, I read about this also, that seriously uh, thought that he might actually come out in favor of contraception? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. I remember that. That he had this commission of theologians looking at it, and among them Rahner and a whole bunch of other horrid people. And, uh, yes, I mean, there w- it was a toss-up what, what he was going to say about it. You see, really, it, what, artificial birth control was already condemned by Pius XI. The question was whether the pill participated in the notion of it. it was, uh, Pius XI was, it wasn't concerned with the pill. So the question was, does the pill uh, uh, come under the umbrella of Pius XI's condemnation of it? That was really the question. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, uh, as I again recall it, you know, I mean, there was no mm-hmm. no question about contraception itself, but whether this was contraception, and and, and so uh, you know the, the, what the pill did, you know. So he, in in, in this case, as in other cases, he um, uh, waffled and tried to um, uh, you know, split the baby, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, other example of that is in uh, he, he did an encyclical in '64 called Mysterium Fide that supposedly was um, uh, going to uh, clobber those who denied transubstantiation and who came up with other theories. But what he ended up doing is the way that he he um, phrased things in the encyclical. He came up with uh, um, other ideas about the presence of Christ in uh, the assembly and in Scripture. And so on. So he used some of the traditional language there, but then introduced other ideas whereby you could get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So gave everybody something to work with. Yeah, uh, waffling on uh, waffling on those principles. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a someone didn't want to stay on to ask the question, but they just uh, posed it um, to us here um, electronically. And those of you, um, we've got about 20 minutes left in the show to ask any questions you might have. As I said before, you can ask them via Twitter, at True Restoration, or you can call in to 949-272-9417. And this, I have a, another question I want to ask uh, Your Excellency and Father, but I, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, the sort of larger meta question, if we step away from the idea of, of marriage equality 
going to the issue of sodomy and, and homosexuality, um, there, there are different theses that float around. You know, is it a choice? Is it something you're born with, et cetera? And I think um, there's a, the, the caller's question was, is that something that is relevant to the discussion? Is that something that we should talk about? Like, is, it, is it something genetic? Is it something you choose? What does that mean? No, it is not relevant to the discussion in this sense, that whatever the origin of it, what, and there are many origins, uh, you know, and a lot of people just don't know what, what the origin is, but sometimes, you know, you have something called environmental homosexuality, like in prisons and the Navy. Uh, I think it was Churchill who said that the British Navy is, is nothing but rum and sodomy, I think. Uh, I think that's a quote. Uh, and uh, he had a way you know, with words. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, is, I mean, there are various reasons for it and various reasons for the inclination, but the inclination is disordered for whatever reason. Uh, I would compare it to kleptomania. That you know, it gives somebody pleasure to steal something, uh, but that doesn't make it right to steal it. Uh, it, it's like being born, if, if if people are born with it, being born with uh, some sort of genetic you know, problem. Uh, they have to, the laws of morality apply to them just like they apply to anybody else. They apply to the kleptomaniac. He has to, in some way, overcome his, his inclination to that and at least uh, curb his inclination so that he doesn't do what he's inclined to do. Uh, and you know he uh, if he's faithful to his prayers and and uh, he can be given the grace of god to to go to heaven you know it's it's not condemning anyone to hell or anything like that and and you know as far as the catholic church is concerned it's just one more sin in the confessional to to confess i mean there's there's nothing in in that way extraordinary about it but when you the problem with marriage is that you are giving it a sanction and approval as if these disordered acts are not disordered and that they should be given approval of law and that they should be upheld in society as something acceptable. That, as I said, is, is a, it's an incredibly sick society that, that could do that. And, and uh, that, that is the intrinsic problem of, of, of making a matrimony out of this. Uh, or as civil unions or anything, uh, these people uh, should be told to avoid the occasions of sin, not to enter into unions or marriages or anything like that. They should avoid the occasions of sin. They should avoid those people who might lead them into uh, acts which are contrary to the law of God. Uh, and that's what any priest would say to them in the con- in the confessional. Any good priest would say to them in the confessional. Uh, so. Um, so that that's the uh, in, it really doesn't matter what the origin of it is the, the fact is that it is there and it is done for some reason and uh it has to be resisted and, and uh uh just and the law has to be obeyed father to me uh, this is the other point I wanted to circle back to cuz you know we had been talking about humane vitae and you had said mm-hmm. that we had Vatican II's, you could say echoes or shadows. Do we see anything in Humanae Vitae relating to today's topic about homosexuality, or was it something that just confined itself to marriage and the marriage we would think of in a traditional sense and uh, in contraception? Uh, it, it confined itself, as I recall, to the issue of, of marriage and contraception. But, um, you know, my 
theory, and I think Bishop Sanborn agrees with me, is this is just part of the picture. You know, the, that it's it's a um, uh, uh, sort of uh, sort of a clue. It's part of the whole process. Why we're discussing what we're discussing today? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, because it, it uh, humanae vitae was was part of the undermining of the traditional understanding of the ends of marriage. I also think that it, 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 that whole mentality of the sixties. Uh, enshrining pleasure and enthroning pleasure uh, as as the uh, moral norm uh, of sexual activity did lead to uh, uh, the abuse among the clergy. They they lost their sense of the natural law and of inhibition uh, and of uh, having to to conform to the law and avoid the occasions of sin and. Uh, I, I think that definitely, I mean, probably 95% of those cases were since Vatican II, and I, I think there was a, just a, a moral breakdown among the clergy themselves, uh, intellectually, that if I'm inclined to do this, if, the, you know, if this gives me pleasure, there is something right about it. I don't have to be inhibited about it. I because, know, I think yeah, essentially, that was the uh, morality, if you want to call it that, that was, was preached and hinted at and, and, and taught. And um, so you're, you have the breakdown of, of clerical discipline and the uh, you, uh, breakdown of morality and abandonment of the priesthood. How many priests you know, uh, became discouraged and abandoned the priesthood and figured, well, what's the point? Because now everything that I've been taught up to this point is up for grabs, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, the, the the concepts of of uh, uh, what's right and what's wrong, um, uh, what's sinful and what's not, have have uh, all gone out the window with the spirit of Vatican II, and um, now everything has changed, and I can do what I want, mm-hmm. and you know you would uh, you saw it, I'm sure in in uh, your situation, your seminary in New York, I saw it mine, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a general, uh, I don't know, um, loosening, and, and, you know, it was as if somebody unchained the whole moral code uh, of the Catholic Church. Uh, in an instant, I mean, in a matter of years, a few years, maybe two or three years, the Catholic Church went from being this stalwart bastion of morality into, you know, you just could sense it. I mean, people were just giving up the the moral code and and following their basest instincts. Now, that was the spirit of the 60s, and, and that just ran right through the, the decades. Well, that, that, doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like slouching towards Gomorrah. It sounds like jumping right in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, and I don't think that clergy was capable of saying anything different to the lay people. I mean, the clergy were were as bad or worse than the lay people, and and they couldn't say, well, you can't you know do contraception when they themselves were were already uh, given to various things. You know, or the guys who uh, the ones who did try to maintain standards and uh, who tried not to give in would end up being silenced. 
Yes. Uh, you know, having that, you know, you can't uh, say this, that, uh, and that from the pulpit. Say about contraception. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know, we're going to uh, pull you out of here. And, you know, you get into yeah. trouble. I mean, just imagine a novice or a priest getting up and saying that, uh, quoting St. Thomas Aquinas, that contraception, contraception participates in the notion of murder and that anybody who per- performs contraception is going to hell unless he repents uh, beforehand. I mean, that's the teaching of the Catholic Church, what I just said. Imagine, you know, if some Novus Ordo priest got up and said that, he would be in the boondocks by the end of the day. You know, that that would be unacceptable behavior. Well, I, uh, That is I, the teaching I, of the Catholic Church. Yeah, you had you had guys who had their uh, you know faculties pulled for hearing confessions uh, because they were hardline on the question of contraception. Yes, that's true. And you know early retirements and people sort of like drummed out. So the, the few that you would have who would resist on these different points would uh, get axed, and everyone else who had gone along with the revolution who hadn't left the priesthood yet would um uh you know reject them they 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 would be on the outside of uh you know the 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 uh, outside of clerical circles you could see that you see that going on mhm uh, so i mean a lot of them the older guys just retired and said you know they can't uh they just can't understand it they can't take it anymore and i you know i imagine that uh, a lot of the younger ones just simply left mhm Yes. You know, Your Excellency and Father, it's interesting you mentioned about, you know, what the comparison would be for the Novus Ordo Church because there are some of our listeners who still consider, or I don't say still consider, but they consider the Novus Ordo Church the, the Catholic Church. They consider it either the successor or the actual Catholic Church. And so when you talk about that kind of uh, preaching, you know, I've been told uh, by people that there are counseling groups for people uh, who are, uh, who are divorced and uh, how to get them back into the sacraments. Uh, because if we go back to the idea of principles, which you enunciated at the beginning of the show, the guiding principle of the Nova Sordo sect is acceptance and tolerance. That That is their watchword and that is their that is their guiding light. And so, of course, we just have to welcome in everybody and, and sort of have a big, big tent New World Order church. Mm-hmm. We can't be judgmental. Yeah, heaven forbid. That, that, that is the the most evil thing in the world is to be judgmental. That means to apply the principles of Catholic morality to what somebody is doing. That, that, that's evil. Yes, because how can you know that he's not just simply following his conscience? Right. You know, we, we've heard all these arguments how many times. Yeah, yeah. that's human dignity. Yeah, it's human dignity, the dignity of the human person and uh, personalism and, uh, you know, everything is fine. And you see, that goes back to Vatican II with the document on religious liberty, that human dignity calls for the fact that you should be free to embrace and practice a false religion. Now, let's think of worshipping the golden calf, that you should be free to do that and you have the faculty to do that. Uh, and be unmolested by any kind of fear or any any kind of uh, restraint. Well, you know, if you can worship a golden calf, which is far more blasphemous and offensive to God than than say even sexual immorality of whatever kind, well, then the door is open to human dignity embracing anything it wants. 
it goes back to Vatican II. The, 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 you know, citing human dignity in order to embrace a false religion, just you can cite human dignity to embrace anything because there's nothing worse than a false religion. The first commandment of God is, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. It's the first commandment. And so any other form of immorality, including abortion, murder, anything, can be justified on that principle. And, you know, it, it doesn't offend the modern conscience because the modern conscience is relativistic and, and skeptical. Uh, religion really doesn't matter to the modern conscience. It's whatever you, you know, please, whatever you think about your personal God. We all worship the same God. So it's not offensive when they hear something like that. They think that's nice, that's good, you know, people can live together now. But it is extremely offensive to Almighty God. And, and proof of it is what Moses did when he, when he returned from the mountain. You know, he didn't proclaim the religious liberty of the of the calf worshippers. Uh, quite to the contrary, uh, other things happened. <laughs> Somewhat negative things happened. Uh, Somewhat <laughs> negative, yeah. Just, uh, it would be Which on the side of negative theology, I think. Twenty-three thousand people dying in one day. Yeah. <laughs> At uh, the command of God, that was not Moses' decision. Gen- uh, Exodus says, "At the command of God." He did that. Yes. And as uh, William Thomas Walsh, Thomas Walsh points out, in history he is known for the person that put more people to death for having having uh, worshipped uh, in a wrong religion than anyone else in in, in the world. <laughs> Moses. That's right. I think he calls them the first inquisitor, right? <laughs> yes. The, 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 the <laughs> yes. Uh, the, the, it's, uh, and the, there's no one, there's no Inquisition, nobody that ever put to death as many people as he did for worshiping in the false in a false religion. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's just something to. But uh, I'm just pointing out that the the license to do all of this stuff goes back to Vatican II and to religious liberty. The idea of choice, you know, yes, which is choice is the. The, the word that's bandied about so much in modern society. You know, the, the, the theme for the pro-abortion movement is choice. Choice as the, as the exercise of human dignity, and that goes back to what I said about Rousseau, that the highest good of man is liberty. And therefore, when he exercises free choice, he is being dignified, and, and he is exercising and possessing this highest good. That goes straight back to the 18th century revolutionary thinkers and it's all false it's as false as the devil himself yeah because uh, you it depends on what you choose yes <laughs> and yes uh, obviously is that that the uh, the faculty to choose between two things is not the supreme good you have to choose what's good yes it's like but, what you see <laughs> or what you want Yes. Uh, it, it, it is uh, the the goodness or evil of it is the object, not your act. Your act is actually indifferent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is just an act, but it is specified. That means its morality is determined by what you want or what you see or what you consent to. One of the uh, direct messages I've gotten here from, on Twitter from. Uh, uh, one of our listeners has been uh, going back to the idea of Catholic action. 
um, is there a way for us to, uh, and again, this is accepting whether Novus Ordo churches are, I suppose the, 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 the listener is accepting that the Novus Ordo church is the Catholic church, that um, to lose the tax-exempt status and to withdraw from a civil recognition of marriage. So I, I think the listener is trying to parse the difference between holy, matri- holy matrimony and civil marriage, and that this was tied together during the time of Christendom, and now since the government has decided to separate itself from Christendom, that we should separate ourselves from the government in recognizing uh, what the government has to say about marriage. The government separated... The, the government separated itself from Christendom in the 18th century. No. Uh, I mean, th- that has to be understood. This was never a Catholic country. It was never a Christian country. And George Washington said it to some some sort of sultan in North Africa in the 1790s when he was president of the United States. He said, this is not a Christian country. So let no one be deceived. The United States is an indifferent country. It's indifferent mm-hmm. to religion. And it is, uh, you know, officially atheistic. I mean, it has no recognition of no God in its laws or in its constitution. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, that's when it abandoned Christendom at the very beginning. We are just feeling the effects of it now. Uh, and the reason we're feeling the effects of it is because people in the 18th and 19th century had a hangover of Christendom flowing in their blood. They they had a, a horror for sodomy. They had a horror for even divorce or contraception. They considered those things immoral. They had a great reverence for the Sunday obligation. A lot of things that were hangovers from the Middle Ages and, and the age of Christendom, but they were just hangovers, and they had no gas left. It's something like a car rolling down a hill or... or you know, that has no gas, but is still going on a coast, so to speak. There was nothing holding it together. So as pressures came from the revolution to change, people really could appeal to nothing in order to stop it. Uh, and that that's, uh, so, you know, will the government, uh, you know, put pressure? Right now the government has always exempted uh, churches from conforming to these things that, that touch upon morality. Will that always continue? I don't know, but, you know, we have to be ready for the manure carts. Yeah. We should not think that the, we are somehow going to be uh, protected uh, or, you know, we, we are living in times that are leading up to the Antichrist and just as the manure carts uh, showed up for the prisoners in, in the Paris prison to go to the guillotines and they got in the manure carts and had their heads chopped off, we have to have the same spirit. We we cannot give in to any of these things. I don't care what they do to us, you know. And, and uh, uh, that that's the spirit of martyrdom, and and that that will be the glory of the church if it, it should ever come to that. Indeed, it will. But I uh, uh, honestly, to answer the listener's question, I don't see that happening for a while, because the um, uh, Congress a number of years ago, really wrapped the knuckles of the Internal Revenue Service about its dealing with churches. And the, the, uh, there's still enough non-Catholics who still have enough clout with uh, a Congress to, so that uh, churches, when it comes to the moral issues, are left alone. Um, whether, but as 
you know, as Excellency says, that may not always last. You know, it uh, could last for uh, 10 or 20 years, and then everything could shift. And there's no principle in our political system or in society to prevent that from happening. Yes. There's no appeal to a god. No. We've had about half of our half of our uh, live listeners to today's podcast have joined us since the halfway mark of the show. So for any of you who are just hopping on, uh, this is Clerical Conversations in the Crisis. Our show topic today is marriage equality and the, um, the Catholic point of view on this issue. Our guests have been His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada of Savior to the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Um, one of the one of the, I suppose, summative ways, and so those of you who are just joining us, if you wait until the end of the show and wait about five minutes, it will cycle back in streaming, so you can either listen to it directly or download the podcast, but give it about five minutes after the end of the broadcast to do so. Um, your Excellency, Father, we probably want to wrap up. We're close to our shows, and normally when we do some of these shows uh, we have some kind of reference point, and it's so odd that uh, our society, as such, and you, you refer to, we've been talking about it all, all show today, the lack of principles. But I think this goes back to something His Excellency said in the beginning: is that we have a fundamental problem in the American Constitution that leads to the way that most Americans are going to encounter this topic at barbecues or around the kitchen table, etc., which is the uh, why can't we all just get along? Idea, <laughs> right? Um, Americans are very good at, hey, uh, whatever you want to do in the privacy of your own bedroom, uh, it doesn't harm me. Uh, we don't need to worry about it. That's between you and God. Uh, you handle it that way. That's not my business. I think this is a natural, I suppose this natural attitude, which has been put into American Catholics, stems back from our governing documents. Um, how do, you know... Are we just infected hopelessly, Your Excellency and Father? We have to just wash our brains out with soap every day? <laughs> well, I, I mean, when you say we, uh, traditional Catholics, no, I think uh, traditional Catholics are more and more aware of this problem. Uh, Catholics in general or Novus Ordo Catholics, yes, I think it's hopeless for them. I think that they are infected. And uh, this country was seen, unfortunately, as a haven from... A controversial Europe. Uh, the the uh, Europeans were persecuting the Catholic Church in the 19th century. Germany was, France, everybody was, was the Church went through terrible times in the 19th century, and this country was seen as a, a an oasis, you know, where you could practice your faith and nobody would bother you. Uh, but that came at a, an intellectual price, and that was precisely what you mentioned that. Well, you know, uh, if I have a right to do this, well, you have a right to be whatever you are too, and and that's not true because you have a right only to be right. <laughs> you have a right only to what is true. Uh, so the the American Catholic mind became very badly infected with that. So much so that the person that uh, sponsored religious liberty was none other than Cardinal Spellman and and his theologian uh, John Courtney Murray. I mean, they they had the document all written. Uh, they they uh, that, that was the the American doctrine, 
uh, and, uh, you know, it, it quote-unquote worked so beautifully in America, why can't the whole world do this and, and have a, a, you know, a an indifferentist world? Uh, the as much as it is lamentable that that there was a, all the persecutions in Europe of the Catholic Church, nevertheless there was the idea in Europeans that church and state should be united. Mm-hmm. To this day, it persists. The Europeans still cannot think of a society like ours. They are still those governments are still all connected up with the church in France and in Germany and various other places. They cannot get away from it. Uh, I mean, for example, that that in France you can't, you know, they're deciding what the Muslims can wear and not wear. I mean, you know, you wouldn't see that in this country. If you want to wear one of those burqas, you know, you can wear one. You could, you know, walk around naked in this country. They wouldn't care. Uh, Whereas over there, you know, there's uh, they they see the cultural shock upon what they regard as, you know, historical France uh, by these burqas and, uh, and and now they're legislating against other religious things in the workplace. And they can't get their minds off of religion in, in Europe. But, you see, that is because their history is so steeped in union of church and state, which is something that the church teaches, that there should be union of church and state. Uh, whereas this country has the problem that, that it, it blesses this principle of pluralism, that it doesn't matter what you think or do as long as you don't, you know, trespass upon me. And that is a false principle, and it's very dangerous to Catholics. Um, with, our, with our show at its end, I wanted to make sure that we had a chance to um, refer you to the, the work that His Excellency and Father does. And, and this time I made sure I sent in my check before I, I solicited other people for checks, so I... I hope you. I hope you got my last one, your excellency. <laughs> I haven't uh, seen it yet, actually. <laughs> it's the one with all the zeros on the end. <laughs> um, uh, I want to know where the decimal point is, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, His Excellency is down uh, in Brooksville, Florida, at Most Holy Trinity Seminary. His address is 1000 Spring Lake Highway. And that's Brooksville, Florida, 34602. You can learn more about uh, what a seminarian's day is like and the principles that under inform and underwrite the seminary at traditionalmass.org forward slash seminary. And I suppose as seminary professors, you probably are both looking forward to the end of the academic year. Am I correct, Rex and Father? Uh, very much so. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um Bishop uh, Sanborn said it's like having a screaming baby to deal with every day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, getting your courses together and all uh, that. It is it, uh, uh, quite a project. Right. Today right. I had to do, for example, logic in Russian. I mean, that's that's the kind of day I have to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> to teach very, Thomistic logic in Russian. <laughs> yes, yes. So... Uh, just uh, had to look up uh, things like specific difference and genus and species in Russian and, and figure out the right word for that. Yes. yes. So. Uh, so I had a chance to tell you about uh, His Excellency's uh, website. Um, those of you, you know, we've we've heard all this talk about Iron Man 3 and the new Star Trek movie, but people have forgotten that Father Chikada's most recent mass video only was only premiered last week. And so if you've been waiting with bated breath, as most of us have for the last nine months, uh, as Father Chikata has been working through his newest video, 
you can find it at youtube.com forward slash work of human hands. And um, the title of video 11 is Tail Hard's Offertory. Tail uh, Yes. French pronunciation needs work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and uh, you can watch that video uh, there. It's, it's actually, I think it's the longest video in um, the Work of Human Hands uh, YouTube channel. So, yeah, I, I think uh, it's the best one he did. It is very interesting and very funny, too, it, it, but very interesting and informative. I mean, I read the whole book and proofread it for him, and... I still learn things from the video, uh, things that I didn't know from the video. So it's worth re- uh, seeing. It's very, very good. Well, well, Father, that's high praise coming from a bishop. Indeed it is. <laughs> I'll put it on my resume. <laughs> um, and uh, Father's website is sggresources.org. Uh, you can find um all sorts of works, uh, links to different works that St. Gertrude has as far as their apostolate, including um, you can order Work of Human Hands and the Ottaviani Intervention, both of which, both which Father Chikata had a, uh, a role in. Uh, you've been listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, which is a production of Restoration Radio and True Restoration Media. You can find those at facebook.com forward slash restoration radio and facebook.com forward slash true restoration media and you can look at the work that true restoration does at www.truerestoration.org which like father's uh, sgg resources site gives you links to all the different uh work that we do your excellency father thank you for yet another really informative show um i think we had a chance to cover a lot of topics and uh, as i said i know it's the end of the academic year so i know it was a, a long day for you and we all appreciate your time Thank you very much. Bye now. Bye-bye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.